This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Welcome to another program in this series on the three principal aspects of the path by the Tibetan Buddhist master Lama Tsongkhapa. There's not much benefit if we come across the Dharma, but being born in some hovel in the slums of, of Calcutta, we find it too hard to practice what the Buddha taught. This is true for many Indians living in the Buddhist's holiest of holy places, Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha became enlightened. They're so poor that their only concern is where their next meal is coming from. I've been to Bodh Gaya a few times to hear teachings from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and the place is always full of beggars with their hands out. However, very few of them ever go to listen to the teachings, where they might learn the causes not to experience such poverty in the future. I've spoken before of the Tibetan monks setting up a large puja at the stupa in Bodh Gaya, and some of the local Indian boys stealing from the pile of food offerings meant for the puja. One lama said it was a great shame because the boys were just creating the causes to experience the same miserable poverty again in their future lives. If they had instead participated in the puja, they would have been given some of the offerings anyway and also created positive causes for a much better life or lives in the future. It is said that the best kind of life to practice the Dharma is the human life. So we have to ask ourselves, what we have to do to get such a life again in the future. We have it this time, but that doesn't mean we'll be born human again in our next or following lives. In fact, the Buddha said that amongst all the many types of rebirth we could take, it was extraordinarily difficult to take a human rebirth. Just to be born human, not necessarily to come into contact with the Buddha's teachings, we have to keep precepts, primarily the ten virtues. That is, not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, not lying, slandering, uttering harsh words or gossip, not coveting what belongs to others or having harmful thoughts towards others and not holding wrong views. Now if we think a little deeply about these things, we can see that all of them are aimed at not harming others but instead cherishing them. For instance, we might walk into the kitchen one morning to be greeted by a large cockroach on the bench top. What do we do? Of course, most people would immediately look for the nearest squashing instrument with which to flatten the cockroach. But if we hold the precept not to kill, it would be unthinkable to harm the insect in any way. So we would have to find another strategy to deal with it. Maybe catching it gently in a piece of soft paper and letting it go outside with a blessing for it to live long and happily, even if not in our kitchen. Can you see how the precept not to kill actually means to not harm another living being, 
especially by not taking its life. Similarly, by avoiding stealing, we're giving up harming another being by taking what belongs to that being without permission. That being can then feel safe and secure around us. And the same can be said of our precept to avoid sexual misconduct. Doesn't that automatically avoid harming others? Once or twice before I was a monk, when I tried to help others, particularly people quite a bit younger than myself, they thought I was after something, like sex, in return. However, when I started wearing the robes, it was as if I'd put on a badge, declaring I was not seeking sex from anyone, and it became easier to help people without them thinking I had a hidden agenda. Think also about the facts of lying, slander, harsh words and gossip, covetousness, harmful thoughts and wrong views, and you can see that precepts against them are based on not harming others, but rather cherishing them. So here, cherishing others is a cause for a human rebirth. Then in that rebirth, we need the essentials, so that we don't have to be poor as the Bodhgaya boys that have to steal to feed themselves. What is the cause for having good resources? Generosity. Miserliness puts us in situations where it's very difficult to get what we need. So we have to practice generosity now to have good resources in the future. Generosity is again benefiting others, that is cherishing them by giving them what they need and want. So cherishing others turns out to be a cause for being able to live properly to continue on our spiritual journey. Then we also need to be attractive and appealing to others. Now I don't mean sexy and alluring, but to practice Dharma we need to be surrounded by people and other beings that do not feel repelled or antagonistic towards us. And what is the cause for being attractive to others but patience? Shantideva talks about patience when experiencing suffering, when in difficulties with others, and in practicing the Dharma. But patience actually means, again, cherishing others. If someone is angry with us and we keep our mind steady and peaceful, we are helping by not making the angry person even more angry by retaliating. There's a much better chance of the anger calming down if it's not met by a violent reaction. Of course, this doesn't mean that we become doormats for others and strong action may become necessary. But the more we can stay patient and calm, the better chance the situation has of quietening down. We can also practice patience when fa facing suffering. Recently, I had to have a root canal treatment on the back tooth that had died. Now, I try not to have injections because they mostly seem more trouble than they're worth. So the whole treatment was done without anesthetic. I practiced Tonglen, mentally taking on the suffering of all others with my own and sending out happiness. Actually, there wasn't much pain as the tooth was already dead. It was only sore when the dentist drilled a little bit deeper than he should have and went into the gum. But still, I was able to keep a quiet mind during the whole nearly four-hour treatment thanks to the Buddhist teachings. And this is just one example of how we can train in techniques to develop patience during difficult situations. That patience we develop will help us in the future. But yet again, you can see that practicing like that, especially when others are being difficult, is actually cherishing others. We have the mind that we don't want to increase suffering, especially of someone who is already obviously not happy. 
We can also think of how we need help when, for instance, we want to go into long retreat in an isolated place. We then need others to look after us, at least to bring us food and other necessities occasionally. The cause for such help is the benefit that we ourselves gave others previously. This may be in this or in previous lives. When I did a three-month retreat at the beginning of the year, I was surprised by the number of people that were ready to make a sometimes difficult two-hour tramp into the forest to bring me the stuff I needed. I didn't even have to ask them. As soon as they heard I wanted to do retreat, they volunteered to help me. There's no doubt that my willingness to serve as a monk in this life had something to do with it, but probably also helping others in a previous life or earlier in this life helped a lot as well. So again, we can see that being able to practice the Dharma as we wish depends on cherishing others. Okay, so that's enough on an introduction to cherishing others. Let's now motivate as we usually do. And seeing as we are talking about cherishing others, let's make that our motivation for the program today. But let's not only think of cherishing them with short-term benefits, like chocolate bars and movie tickets, but also long-term benefit, like gaining enlightenment. Thank you. Now, in her commentary, the renowned nun Tupton Chodron goes on to talk about what it means to give up the mind of selfishness. She says, What we need to abandon here is this mind that says, Oh, if I don't care, take care of myself, nobody's going to take care of me. And if I take care of others, I'm going to neglect myself and I'm going to be unhappy. Do you know that mind? Do you have that little mind whispering back here sometimes? Follow me. Take care of yourself and you'll be happy. So we go, yes, I'm going to take care of myself. This is mine. That's not yours. Give it to me. Tipton Children points out that following that little voice is what we tend to think of as taking care of ourselves, But actually, it is being self-centered. Really taking care of ourself is creating good karma and being generous. She says, the selfish little mind is so overwhelmed with fear that if I take care of others, nobody's going to take care of me. That mind is really our enemy, because it's very clear that if we take care of others, they're going to take care of us. I think there's something here that is quite important to be learned. I mean, you can see karma at work just in our own lives. She uses the example of parents developing some expectation that their kids will look after them when they're old. You have to look at what kind of example you're setting for your kids about how to relate to parents, she says. You set that by how you relate to your parents. If you relate to your parents with kindness and you're generous to your parents and help them with errands and things like that, by your example, you're teaching your kids that that's how kids relate to parents. Oh, my mum is such a pain in the neck. She wants me to do this and that. Dad is always doing this and that. They're so hard to take care of. I just want to put them in an old folks' home so I won't have to worry about it anymore. Well, if that's how you're thinking and talking, she says, that's how your kids will relate to you when you're old. Therefore, if I just take care of myself, I'll be happy, is a dead-end road. If you're too busy and can't be bothered about caring for your parents, you will find your kids do the same to you, because that's what you modeled for them and what you taught them. She then goes on to say that the mind that says, I'd better take care of me because nobody else will, is a liar. 
having done meditations on the kindness of other beings, we should have realized by now that we are constantly being cared for by other beings. They may not take care of us as much as our ego wants them to, she says. They may not do everything we want, but up until now, they've taken care of us in one way or another. This mind that's always saying, I'd better take care of myself and forget about others, now backfires. And she goes on, Again, this does not mean that we become the self-sacrificing martyr. Oh, I love you so much, I'm going to give this up for you because I care about you. I'm sacrificing for you. Look what I've given up for you. That is just more self-centeredness, isn't it? Let's not get into that when taking care of others. Also, because we are beginning level practitioners, we need to take care of others in a way that feels comfortable to us. We need to stretch ourselves a little bit, but we don't need to pull the rubber band so tight that it breaks. We need to stretch it a little bit. We help others as we are able, she says. Now, of course, sometimes we feel resistant when others turn to us for help or benefit. But then, Tupton Children says, we have to push our boundaries a little bit. However, there's no need to push them so far that our ego is going to mount a campaign of self-centeredness back against us, as she puts it. And then she goes on, we have to deal very carefully here, because sometimes when we listen to the Dharma, we get what I call Mickey Mouse compassion. Oh yes, I'm going to give everything away. I cherish others, so I'm going to give everything away. And then your neighbor gets mad at you because you no longer have garbage cans because you gave them away to somebody who needed them, so your garbage is now all over your front lawn. We have to cherish others in a wise manner. We have to do it in a way that feels comfortable, like I said, nudging our boundaries a little bit. And we're all going to have really different boundaries because what is easy for one person to do is hard for another person to do. And so, she says, we have to know what is easy for us and what is difficult. Now, some years ago, I was asked by the then pastor of St. Matthew's Church in Auckland, Ian Lawton, to give a talk on Buddhism to a group of parishioners who met regularly on Tuesday evenings to discuss a wide range of topics. That led me to giving a talk to the whole congregation at St. Matthew's and starting a meditation group in the church that lasted some years. Later, Ian moved to a parish in the States, but in 2013 returned to his homeland of Australia, where he has become, in the words of his blog, a teacher of inner wisdom, divine love, deeper consciousness, oneness, peace and abundance. Recently, I came across his blog, Sacred Seeds, on which I found this article on idiot and wise compassion. He starts, Compassion means to suffer with someone. Compassion is a feeling, but when you truly feel another person's suffering, you want to do what you can to ease it, and so it becomes an action. There is effective compassionate action and what Buddhist teacher Trungpa Rinpoche called idiot compassion. Giving money to a gambler or a drink to an alcoholic because you can't say no may be idiot compassion. Letting someone keep hurting you because you believe they are about to change may be naive compassion. Trungpa described it like this. In order that your compassion doesn't become idiot compassion, you have to use your intelligence. Otherwise, there could be self-indulgence of thinking that you are creating a compassionate situation when in fact you are feeding the other person's aggression. I learned about idiot compassion when I was working on the streets in Sydney as a youngster. One of the first people that I met was a 15-year-old girl. She asked for money. 
We sat down, and at the end of a long conversation, I felt her pain so deeply that I could hardly stand it. I had to do something. So I took her to a local hotel, and I paid for her to stay the night. Then I arranged to meet with her the next morning, so we could sit down and talk about getting her a job and an apartment. In my mind, I imagined that within three weeks, her whole life would miraculously come together in perfect order. My plan was perfect, and I was so excited that I couldn't sleep that night. First thing the next morning, I ran to the hotel and was shocked to discover that she wasn't there. She'd checked out the night before and took the refunded money with her. I was left scratching my head, wondering what's the point. About three days later, I saw her on the street, and as we, pa as we were passing each other, she looked me in the eyes without even a hint of remorse. She was a walking zombie. She looked at me as if to say, How's that plan working out for you? She was right. She didn't want a job, and she certainly didn't want my advice. She just wanted my money to make one night a little easier by escaping her pain. She became a serious heroin user, and I often saw her on the corners of streets, barely awake on her feet. My compassion made little to no difference in her life. I did, however, learn a lot from the experience and you never know what impact your actions might have at a later time. When you try to help someone when they don't want your help, or because you're really trying to help yourself, this may be idiot compassion. It's often the distinction between charity, giving to someone, and empowerment, helping people help themselves. There's certainly a place for both. It's great to help someone. It's even better to help people help themselves, and to do so out of a deep inner mindfulness. In many cases, it's not what you do as much as how you do what you do that makes all the difference. Compassion has so many faces. The Zen story about compassion with a rolled-up umbrella makes the point. A woman was in India riding with a friend in a rickshaw when they were attacked by a crazed man. He did no harm other than to frighten the women. However, the woman was upset and asked her Zen teacher what the appropriate response to her attacker would be. The teacher said very simply, You should have very mindfully and with great compassion whacked the attacker over the head with your umbrella. It's a surprising answer. You expect him to say something about forgiving the man. But compassion has many faces. Ian then later goes on, Compassion can be soft and nurturing and at the same time it can be strong and empowering. It can be a listening ear and a safe space, and it can be tough love and clear boundaries. Compassion can be receptive or active, and it can be anywhere along that spectrum. Compassion can be deeply patient or forcefully impatient. Compassion can simply be present with someone, or it can take someone by the hand and urge them forward. Compassion is best without mixed motives. Compassion that is self-serving or even just lazy, like some handouts, is a mixed blessing. Compassion where you have to step outside of your comfort zone and help people you don't normally associate with is powerful. Ian continues, I love the movie Hotel Rwanda. It makes a powerful point about compassion. When the president dies in a plane crash, the government blames Tutsis and encourages the people to root out these cockroaches and exterminate them. Hutu militias begin murdering Tutsis. Paul, who is Hutu, married to a Tutsi, wants to protect his family. 
but his wife convinces him to help neighbors as well, Hutus and Tutsis alike. He hides them in his abandoned hotel and defends them against all sorts of threat and danger. This is amazing compassion because Paul and his family have to put their own needs aside. Now, most of us don't deal with extreme situations like this, but we all have the opportunity to practice mindful compassion, and every act of compassion makes a difference. Start with yourself. Have compassion for yourself. Do you ever wish you could give more to others but just feel empty? It's a basic truth that if you want to have compassion for others, you need to first have compassion for yourself. It's like when the flight attendant gives instructions to fit your own oxygen mask first before helping others. A person full of compassion can hold the pain of the world without letting it crush you. So let it begin within. You don't have to solve all the problems of the world. Just love the world, do it mindfully, and do it in your own unique way, and that will make all the difference. Love the world in an ever-widening circle of kindness and keep loving until the day when love conquers all hatred and no one and no thing is excluded from love's tender embrace. That's Ian Lawton, and I think it more or less says it all. And we've now covered the disadvantages of self-cherishing and the advantages of cherishing others. The next part of the equalizing and exchanging self for others practice to develop bodhicitta is the actual exchanging self for others. Basically, when we become convinced of how harmful self-cherishing is and how beneficial cherishing others is, we can start to transform our ingrained and society-encouraged attitude of self-centeredness into its opposite. This is actually what is meant by exchanging self for others. And, as I've said before, it has nothing to do with physically swapping oneself with others or that we give our possessions away in exchange for others' things. Tipton Children says it means we're changing the focus of whose happiness comes first. She says, previously, we used to look at others and go, yes, we're okay, but they are next best. First is me. Now, when we exchange self and others, we look at our own happiness and say, oh yeah, that's nice, but it's second best. First is others. We're exchanging who it is that we focus on and care the most about. She emphasizes again that it also doesn't mean we martyr ourselves, which is not compassionate and often involves lots of ego. What we are doing, she says, is opening the scope of who we consider important and really cherishing others. Of course, this might be difficult because the ego is very resistant to anything that doesn't place itself first. So we have to contemplate the disadvantages of self-cherishing and the benefits of cherishing others many times, and then meditate on them again and again. We're certainly not going to transform anything by just listening to them and then nodding as though we know them all. They might be rattling around in our head, but no difference will be made until we make the mind so familiar that it does a flip-flop of its habitual self-serving attitude. His Holiness the Dalai Lama often talks about an exercise that is helpful, especially for Western audiences familiar with democracy. It's adapted from Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life and it involves putting yourself as an observer between the self-centered you on one side and all other sentient beings on the other. You then ask yourself whose happiness is more important, that of the single selfish person or that of the countless others. Obviously, 
the multitude's happiness is of far greater importance than the happiness of the single person, no matter how much the self-centered mind may complain, and complain it will, as Tipton Children points out. She encourages us to examine Shantideva's text, where the kinds of doubts thrown up by our self-cherishing are described. For instance, Shantideva writes, But why should I protect them if their suffering does not cause me harm? Then why protect myself against future suffering if it causes me no harm now? It is a mistaken conception to think that I shall experience the suffering of my next life, for it is another person who dies and another that will be reborn. Tupson Chodron writes, Take your self-centered mind and imagine it as an external person. Give it a face. You need to think of it in whatever form you like, a person, a monster, a blob. Imagine that our self-centered mind is saying, Others' suffering doesn't affect me, so why should I work to dispel it? It feels good, doesn't it? I mean, other people's sufferings don't affect me. What should I care? They should pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. I read Ayn Rand, and I firmly believe that. You should just work for yourself, and that way the world turns out better. So why should we work to dispel others' suffering? Tipton Children goes on, Well, one reason is that we're interrelated, and that others' suffering affects us. And I think this is why His Holiness says that if you want to be selfish, be wisely selfish and care for others. Because if we only work for ourselves and forget about others, we're going to be living in a society with a lot of other unhappy people. And what do people do when they're unhappy? They crash jetliners into the World Trade Center. They break into our homes. They do whatever it is. They write graffiti on the walls. I remember living years ago in Seattle, and there was a bill up for property taxes that would go to the schools. People without children didn't want to pay more property taxes to have more schools and increase the after-school recreational activities and educational things. These people were just thinking, me and my money, and the people who have kids, they should pay for this. But when kids don't have education and recreational activities, what do they do? They get into mischief. Whose houses are they going to break into? The houses of the people who didn't vote for the bond to give more money to the schools. So it becomes totally self-defeating when we only work for ourselves. Why do we want to put more money into building prisons, but we don't want to put money into prevention? We have to think about this as a society, if our approach is correct to really create happiness for ourselves and others. Our interdependence is one reason why we should take care of others and should work to dispel others' suffering. That is one way of explaining, but Shantideva answers with another question. Why, he asks, if you don't care about others, do you work so hard on making sure you'll be well looked after in your old age? After all, the person you will become when you're old will bear no resemblance to the person you are now. Everything would have changed, so why are you concerned about that one other person and not every other other person? We don't even know if ourselves, as an 80-year-old, will even come into being. But, as Tipton Children points out, we work very hard for his or her happiness. If you got up and looked into the mirror and saw yourself, saw this 80-year-old person, this old wrinkled face with white hair or absence of hair, drooped over body or whatever, would you say, that's me? No way. You'd say, that's not me, wouldn't you? 
and we'll have to talk about the other Shantideva verse next time because now time is up. We'll continue again next week, so please join us again. And in the meantime, please dedicate any positive potential we've created today to the enlightenment of all living beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.